Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're with us this morning. We are continuing our series in 1 Peter. Uh, we are still in chapter 1, but it's a short book, so we can take a little more time. Uh, we're looking at chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 10 to 25, the rest of the chapter. Um, the majority of our time emphasis is going to be on verses uh, thir- 13 uh, and I'm just going to get it right for you, just so you can sort of focus your attention uh, on verses 13 to 21. Uh, it doesn't mean I won't touch on those two outer verses, uh, or those two outer sections, verses 10 and 12, and verses 22 to 25, but the, the emphasis is going to be in that center section, uh, just as a, as, a, as a heads up. Last week, we wrestled with the necessity of trials in the life of the believer as a means by which... God purifies and strengthens and tests our faith. Um, it was, it was hard. It's hard. It's hard to think about those reasons why. Uh, in all, it was the, the, the faith itself was meant to be a declaration of salvation. Right? Uh, it was meant to uh, show forth God's glory in our faith. Um, and the whole beginning, if you will, of 1 Peter, from verses 1 all the way to really verse 12, is a declaration of salvation. Um, in theological terms, we call this uh, the indicative. This is a, just a, a term that just uh, means it indicates what we have, who we are. The next section, the section we're about to look at, um, is what you might call the imperative. It's telling us how to live in light of who we are. So we've looked at this long section of indicative of who we are, of the glories of God's grace, uh, being born again to this living hope. And now he's going to tell us, okay, in light of that, this is how you ought to live. Now, doesn't mean that we won't see the gospel percolate out of these verses as well, because we will, but it just is the, the overall emphasis. So with that, we'll, we'll read, starting in verse 10, the end of that section, that beginning section to verse 12, and then verses 13 to the end of the chapter. 1 Peter 1, 10 to 25. Hear God's word. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. Inquiring what person or times the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have, have now been announced that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which the angels long to look. Therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the, to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, 
knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as gold or silver, silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable but of the imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, its eternality, the fact that it endures forever. And not only that it endures, but it gives life. And so, Lord, give us life through your word this morning as we study uh, this section of 1 Peter. Show us what it means to live in light of the glorious gospel. Help us, we ask, give us strength for the daily battles. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Anyone who has played a sport understands the rigmarole of getting geared up. You know what I mean, right? Um, In my case, during basketball season, it always began with taping an ankle or two, and maybe something else, you know, as you have injuries. Um, And then it was putting on your uniform, and then it was uh, putting on your sneakers, and that was kind of the last step of of the process. Um, I also, it was the 90s, and so I had floppy hair, and I had a little headband. (laughs) But it was kind of an elaborate routine, and only after that routine was I ready to go out and play, but there was one thing I was notoriously, and I would say, if my family was here to bear witness to this truth, would say amen, continue to struggle with, it's that I would often not have my shoes tied. I, w- I would be getting ready and all of a sudden the team would be heading into, the, into the, the gym and I would run after them with my shoes untied. Maybe I would tie as we were doing our layups in the layup lines or um, sometimes I would even tie them um, and they would just mysteriously come untied during the game. That still happens to me. And until recently, I, I came to the realization that it matters which way the rabbit goes around the tree. Like, it, it, like the loops, it matters. But anyway, I notoriously struggle my whole life with tying my shoes. And kids, if you're here, I'm fo- over 40 years old, and I still struggle. So if you still struggle, it's, it's okay. But I remember one game where I went to jump up for a rebound only to find my socked foot outside of my sneaker. As someone had stepped on the the back of the heel of my shoe, and since it was untied, my foot came right up. And of course, my coach wasn't happy. He had me sit on the bench until I was prepared. Peter says that as Christians, we also need to be Prepared In verse 13, he transitions from that, uh, that indicative stuff that I talked about, that stuff that reminds us who we are in Christ. Um, 
And he says, therefore, considering all that you are in Christ, therefore, preparing your mind for action. Literally, and your Bibles may even have a note down there. In the Greek, it is, therefore, girding up the loins of your mind. That's a very strange idiom. But actually, it fits with Peter's uh, narrative up to this point. Peter's uh, discussion with these folks in Asia Minor. Remember, he's called these believers in Asia Minor the elect exiles of the dispersion. He was using that ancient covenantal language of Israel and applying it to this uh, formerly pagan group of people. And so when he uses this language, this idiom, gird up the loins of your minds, he's actually drawing on Exodus. He's drawing on Exodus chapter 12, verse 11, as the people were preparing to leave uh, Exodus, travel on this long, arduous journey to the promised land. They were instructed to take their long tunic and gird it up, to gird up their loins, to tie it up, to tuck it into their belt as they were headed off on a long journey. And Peter is saying, you too are on a journey. But rather than a physical journey, you are on a spiritual journey. And so rather than tuck your tunic in, he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Prepare your minds for action. Life as a believer, though it is all by grace, is not without action. You know, Paul said, shall we sin so grace can abound? He says, by no means. The law is good, he says, even though he's just gone and said how the law brings death. He says, but the law remains and it's good. Our life is a life of action. We're called to follow Jesus. This morning we have before us a call to action and thus we ought to prepare ourselves mentally to act. And there are three primary actions to which Peter calls us. First, to hope in Christ. Second, to be holy. Third, to fear the Lord. And we'll look at each of these things. But as always, keeping this in mind, you have a living hope kept in heaven for you. You are born again because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, be holy. Therefore, set your hope fully on Christ. Therefore, fear the Lord, who is the judge of the whole earth, right? Starts with that foundation, that indicative. And we're going to look at that. um, uh, We're going to go back to verses 10 and 12, and as well to 22 and 25 as sort of bookends of our text as I conclude the sermon. But I want us to first consider the exhortation, starting in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action... And being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I brought up this idea that we are to prepare our minds for action. But what does that even mean? Right? It's, it's one, you can kind of get an idea. You just kind of get ready. But, but what, is, what does Peter mean? Peter clarifies his statement by, being, by stating, be sober-minded. Now, Scripture is really clear on this point. But I don't think it's Peter's main point. But, it, but I think it falls under this category. 
At just a base level, it means don't be drunk. With alcohol, don't be drunk with alcohol. Being drunk is the opposite of being ready for action, isn't it? It, it reduces our ability to think and to act. And on the other hand, it makes you do and say things that you normally would not say. You lose that inhibition. Um, drunkenness is also used as a numbing agent, right? If we've set our hope on glory, uh, we are less likely to be numbed in this life, less likely to find solace in a drink. But I don't think this is what Peter here is speaking primarily about, the dangers of drinking to excess. Peter is talking about having sober minds. What does that mean? Being sensible and self-controlled. Being realistic. Making honest assessments of yourself and of others. It means being humble. It means not being prone to excessive passions. And, you know, being all over the map. It means... Being steadfast. Paul, in thinking about this topic, will in the same breath say, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourselves for godliness. That's Paul in 2 Corinthians. Sort of similar language. It means thinking clearly. Again, as an athlete before a match or a race or a game, you not only get geared up, but what do you do mentally? You get in the zone. You, you press out all those worries and concerns. My coach said to us, I don't know that I followed it, but he said to us, I'd really rather you not have a girlfriend while you're playing basketball. <laughs> Why? Because it was a distraction, right? Get in the zone. So it is with the believer who is headed to glory. Rather than be distracted and waylaid by everything that comes at us, we gear up and Get in the zone like an athlete, fixing our eyes on a goal. Peter says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Earlier, Peter has said, you have been born again to a living hope. In other words, the hope of the gospel, that is, the reality of the resurrection and the surety of our eternal salvation, are, they're not uncertain things. It's not a wish. Like when we think about hope, sometimes we think about wish. It's a sure thing. Our hope is ours. It's absolute. It's yes and amen. Jesus has risen from the dead. Yet, now Peter is saying, set your hope fully. What, is that? what does he mean? If, he, if the hope is sure, if it's, if it's certain, if it's set, what does he mean by set your hope fully? You see, despite the reality of the resurrection and the surety of that grace that's going to be revealed at the last day, the truth is that we are more often than not distracted from it. Isn't that true? Our minds in that sense, get intoxicated with the things of the world. And so we lose sight of that future hope. And there are lots of reasons, lots of reasons for this. The grace that is yet to be revealed, Jesus coming again, that future event, it seems pretty far away, doesn't it? It seems like an abstract concept. 
Not only that, but Christians sometimes, in an attempt to fix their minds on heaven, forget all about the earth and the concerns of it, the trials of it, the work and the otherwise good things that the Lord has called us to here and now in this place. And so when we think about fixing our minds on glory and on the return of Jesus, sometimes we have that feeling like, I don't want to become too heavenly minded and become no earthly good. I don't know if you've heard that little quip. So, so instead of fixing our minds on heaven, we plow into the world and think, well, this is where we live. This is where God has placed me. And true, we create a false dichotomy. We become too wary of becoming too otherworldly, too zealous and religious. Then there are the daily challenges and the pressures of this life, just the regular day-to-day muck plowing through, and it chokes out thoughts of God. These are just a few of the reasons. Yet Peter is saying that it is necessary to fix our eyes on the grace to come, and I would argue not to escape the world, but in order to engage the world now, to rightly engage it. To engage it in a godly way, in a way that brings glory to God. Unless we have our eyes fixed on that future glory, we will not engage rightly the world at hand. The things that we're about to engage with in our life. It's not an either or. You're not either engaged in the world or disengaged. Or looking at the world to come. Rather, as you fix your eyes on the hope of grace with sober Self-controlled realism will be better equipped to engage life. The writer of Hebrews puts it this way in Hebrews chapter 12. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter. Of our faith. Did you notice in there? He doesn't just say put off every sin. He says put off every weight and sin. Well, what are the weight? What's the weight? I mean, what, what is he saying? He's saying rid yourself of those things which take you from your ultimate aim, your ultimate goal, which is looking to Jesus and running the race with endurance. Anything that distracts or gets in your path that destroys or prohibits you from going, he says, get rid of it. Well, we're not only to set our hope on Christ, having that fixed horizon of hope as I've described earlier, uh, but secondly, Peter exhorts us to be holy as God himself is holy. This is what verses 14 to 16 says. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter, once again, is drawing on the Old Testament roots. and He's identifying these Christians with the Israelites of old who were called to follow the law of Moses. Now, we've spent... Now, countless hours looking at the law over the course of the past year in, as we studied Deuteronomy. And my hope is that as we looked at the law, we came out the other side of Deuteronomy in that study 
knowing a little more of what it means to follow Jesus, as we look at the law and see it's both its goodness and as it points us to our need for him. That, that was my hope, that as we, as we went through Deuteronomy, we'd say, yes, I, I can't do this thing, but Christ has satisfied the law, and therefore I have hope, and therefore I'm going to walk in faith, in obedience, in correspondence to the law. This is what Peter's talking about when he brings up this idea of be holy. He draws on a text, on a couple texts from Leviticus, pointing out that as those elect exiles of the dispersion who've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus, we are called to live as those with hope in the Holy One of Israel. As the Lord is holy, so too we are called to be holy. We are called to reflect Him. We're called to look like Him. The Lord of holiness is then to be reflected in our lives as we look holy. Now, I'm going to stop there because I, I actually think this word holy causes some consternation. Um, for one, it's fraught with negative connotations, isn't it? Uh, in popular culture, we use the term, well, they, are, they think they're holier than thou. That's the kind of language of like the self-righteous one. So holiness is oftentimes wrapped up into this concept of self-righteousness, holier than thou. Or we think of the terrifying throne room of God in which no one is able to survive. It's a terrifying thing. When we think of the holiness of God, it's too much. It's overwhelming to us. And so when someone says you need to be holy, we immediately feel dread and this overwhelming sense of inability. That's too far. That's too great. Who can be holy in this life? And this is where it's extremely important that we get the indicative right before the imperative. The, the thing that defines us before we get the marching order right. Believer, you are sanctified. It's what Peter said at the very outset of this letter. He said, you are sanctified. And we talked about the, how that word sanctification can have two separate meanings. One is it can talk about a positional who you are. You are holy. So I can look out at CCPC and I can say, the saints in West Hartford, as Peter and Paul and the other apostles would write letters, that's how he would describe the people he was writing to. The saints, sanctified ones, set apart, holy of God. You are holy. Peter says here, he says, as obedient children, as obedient children, um, sometimes as families, we take on certain characteristics. You know, qual- like you look at a family and they have a certain character, they have certain passions or values or qualities. Uh, and as a family, you even identify these. And so I might say to my kids who aren't here, but if they dared to go off the reservation and say, root for the Yankees, I might say something like, a true gray would never root for the Yankees. Being a gray and a Yankee fan don't go hand in hand. They opposites. Or I might ask them, when they're being unruly at the dinner table, where are your manners? I don't ask them, do they have manners? I assume they have them, but somehow they've lost them. 
They belong to them. We've trained them. They know them. If I asked them what are manners, they would be able to express them in words. But somehow they've been lost in the shuffle of dinner table. Peter's saying something like this when he says, As obedient children, which you are by declaration, you have been declared righteous, right? You are holy. You are righteous. You are, you are loved by God. He's saying, this is who you are. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Don't start acting like your former self. You've been given a new identity. This isn't... You're not a Yankee fan. I'm sorry, Yankee fans. I keep saying. <laughs> you are holy. And the problem is we don't often feel holy, do we? Just don't. It's really easy to see our sin. Really easy. We see our uncleanness. We fall too easily into temptation. And when we hear the command, you shall be holy for I am holy, it fills us with dread. I want to hold that intention for just a minute. As we consider one last exhortation. See, being filled with dread isn't completely wrong. When we are faced with a holy God and see that we act in unholy ways. In fact, Peter calls us to fear the Lord. Look at verse 17. It says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Conduct yourselves with fear. Throughout the time of your exile. Fearing the Lord, I think, on the face of it, can seem contra, contrary to the gospel. But it's only contrary to the gospel if we misunderstand what scripture means when it calls us to fear the Lord. Throughout scripture, this concept of fearing God, fearing the Lord, crops up. It's not just in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I wrote in the, in the front cover of those books... Uh, for Pierre and for Mike, uh, that famous verse from Proverbs chapter 1 that says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Right? So throughout the Old Testament, the concept of fearing the Lord is, is, is there, but it's not just in the Old Testament. Throughout the Gospels and Acts and the Epistles as well, Paul says something similar to that word in Proverbs. He says similar... Something to Peter says here as well. He tells the Corinthian church to cleanse themselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so if scripture, and I didn't go through everything, but just kind of touched on a few things. But if scripture all the way through it says that fear of the Lord is an important aspect of faith, it cannot be contrary to the gospel. It cannot be opposed. Then what does it mean when we talk about fearing the Lord? And the first thing to note is that dread is part of it. And it's usually the initial part of it. 
When we are faced with God as our judge and we have not yet put our trust in Christ, then there is and ought to be a dread of God. He is the judge of heaven and earth and will judge every man for his deeds. And everybody in this world faces that judge. Some dread God in different ways. Some pretend he is not. This is the way they express dread. An atheistic dread which feels threatened by the very thought or existence of God. They dread God by by constantly having to push God away and saying he doesn't exist. Some try to stand defiantly against him, cursing him, calling him evil, maligning his people and his word, calling good evil and evil good. Some try to ignore God and busy themselves with life and push away the thoughts of dealing with God. The kind of agnostic, if you will, the one who's just, I can't be, I don't want to deal with that thought. I'm just going to deal with what's in front of me. Some try to appease God. They grovel before him, trying to offer up supposedly righteous acts, saying, if I do my good works, God might be pleased with me. Some simply despair. They ruin their lives in despair. And some fall before him and acknowledge him as God. For this last type of who has dread, this last person who falls before him and says, Where can I go from your presence? If I go up to the mountains, you are there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you are there with me. This type of dread leads to repentance and to faith. It's the dread that says, apart from God himself, I'm utterly hopeless. I am unholy. I am sinful. And it is through Jesus, the Lamb of God, Who takes away the wrath of God for sinners like me and whose precious blood was shed that I might have eternal life. That person who dreads and fears the living God throws himself at the feet of Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you know what happens? The dread is gone. And in place is another sense of the fear of the Lord. A wondrous reverence. The kind you get when you step into a great palace or as you peer into the infinitely wonderful starry night. Or as you watch a mighty breakers crash against a shore. It's a sense of awe and wonder at both the beauty and the terror of a thing. Peter exhorts us to reflect on the redeeming ransoming work of Jesus and be in awe and wonder at the Lord who before the foundations of the world set forth on a mission to die, to rise again and then to ascend into heaven only to return again to judge heaven and earth. And as we reflect on this Jesus, the eternal King, the crucified and risen Lord, should shape the way we think and act in this world. It should make us sober-minded. It should help fix our eyes on glory.
It should remind us of we have a holy God who has who has atoned for my sins and I have access to that throne room of grace, to that mercy seat, and I can enter in because of the blood of Jesus, and so I am holy. And so I'm going to walk in holiness. I want to conclude. You're called to fix your eyes on Christ. To be holy as he is holy and to fear the Lord. But those are, those are high callings. But this is the good news. The prophets of old looked forward to Jesus and proclaimed his coming. Did you read those words at the beginning? It was for us. They were serving us. They wrote these words down to... Recount the wonders of God as they looked forward to salvation. And so when Jesus came, the fulfillment of all that was promised in the Old Testament, we might rejoice and sing Hosanna to the King, the Messiah who has come. And as he hangs on the cross, and the wrath of the great judge is poured out on him, we have hope. Hope of glory. Hope in the crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. And this is good news. This is the good news that was proclaimed. This imperishable word. This seed that will never die. And though the flowers are the flesh, the, all flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades. But this word, this good news, remains forever. What does this mean? It means that we walk in hope and holiness and fear. Not because we're strong, but because he is. Friends, we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another until we reach that final shore, that destiny. And so take courage. You've been born again to a living hope. Fix your eyes there on that hope. By the grace of the Holy Spirit, be holy and humbly walk before the living God and judge of the whole earth by his grace. Let's pray.